Hello and welcome to the Reptile Living Room. Once again, I am your host, John F. Taylor. And in today's interview, we are talking with uh, Dr. William K. Hayes from the Loma Linda University. We're going to be talking to him today about uh, snakes in general, um, but more specifically about rattlesnakes and the research that he's been doing up there at uh, Loma Linda University. So without further ado, here is Dr. William K. Hayes from Loma Linda University. Dr. Hayes, first of all, I uh, wanted to welcome you to the show, and uh, I guess our first question of the day would be, how did you get started in reptiles in the first place? Well, I'm sure there's something genetic there. <laughs> my dad, my dad uh, always seemed to keep a snake or two in the house. Oh, wow. And we'd go on weekend picnics, we'd go to nature centers, we'd go to parks, we'd go to wild areas, and... He was always out looking for snakes, and so my, I, I'm a twin, my twin brother and I, my younger brother, even my older sister, we'd all tag along and behind him, and, you know, he'd grab a snake, and we wanted to have our hands on it, and they were always fascinating to us. Wow. So it really started there, and, right. um, but interestingly enough, you know, we always had frogs, snakes in the basement, and uh, my parents always knew when it was spring because uh, they start hearing spring peepers, other frogs calling from inside the house instead of outside. <laughs> but, uh, one day my dad's like, you know, why don't you guys get into birds or something else? <laughs> and we're like, come on, dad, you can't, you can't pick up a bird and, and hold it. Yeah. And, uh, he kind of nodded. Yeah. Yeah. A few years later, um, my, my twin brother and I, and two of our best friends were in this seventh grade class. And, uh, we had to draw names of all the 30 students or so. We had to draw a name out of this this uh, bowl to, for the person we were going to buy a Christmas gift for. And my brother and I drew our two best friends. Didn't know what to get them. Ended up getting walking into a mall and a bookstore and saw Wider Tory Peterson's Field Guide to the Birds of Eastern North America. Uh. We thought that was kind of a funny gag gift. <laughs> so we bought those books for those two guys. Okay. And then Christmas party in school, each of them bought us those two books. It's like, I don't know how they <laughs> And they each bought those same books for us. We just thought it was a riot. Four guys, with, uh, to make a long story short, really got in big into birds. Right. But uh, never left the snakes behind um, in college. Uh-huh. I got interested in rattlesnake research, wanted to do something different, and just always, we always, you know, we were hiding venomous snakes in our home for a few years, <laughs> and uh, and uh, my brother ended up going the way that he does more ornithology than herpetology, oh, but okay. uh, I got, I, I found some rattlesnake dens and really got going there, and, and I've never regretted, I was going to be a marine biologist really? in college, Wow. I got fascinated with snorkeling scuba diving things uh-huh. um, are great I mean who could not be interested you, you know I feel the same way you know um, <laughs> I don't see any, why anybody couldn't be interested in the snakes and uh, now speaking of interest in snakes one of your uh, papers that I really really enjoyed uh, was the sensationalistic journalism and tales of snake bite talking about interest in snakes it seems like every time anyone gets bit in the United States and especially in California it's like, you know, front page news that this person, the way the press makes it sound is this person may as well have just been, you know, walking to the grocery store and this 20-foot rattlesnake came out of nowhere and chased him down for at least three miles and way out of hand. 
Lots of hype. Yeah. So what what is your uh, take on that, <laughs> I guess, so to speak? Well, that particular paper I wrote with Steve McKessie, mm-hmm. um, I came... I just got tired of reading these press reports that uh, rattlesnakes were rapidly evolving more toxic venom. Right. And I had a reporter call me on the phone and ask me some questions um, from Scientific American, which is a pretty well-respected right. venue. Yeah. And after the story appeared, I looked at what was attributed to me, and it's like, I hardly even recognize that. It looks stupid. And, uh, and it didn't matter what I had said. You know, he still claimed that, oh, these snakes were evolving rapid, venom rapidly. And, and um, I, I just, I didn't like it. So I, I got in touch with Steve and said, look, I'm working on this manuscript. I want us two biologists to write it. Right. Uh, I know more about venom than I do, but I, I, I'm contributing this and this and that idea. Right. We put it together, and, and we, simply, we simply showed that, um, we, re, you know, showed with good arguments mm-hmm. that... Uh, the claims are totally bogus. Right. That uh, there's no reason, there's no real evidence. Number one, that snake bite cases have become more severe in recent decades. Part of the problem there is that the treatment has changed. The antivenom has changed. And uh, and and apart from that, even if there was evidence that snake bites were becoming more severe, that doesn't mean the snake's venom is becoming more toxic. There's other issues at play. For example, uh, it could be that the drought we're having here in the Southwest mm-hmm. is curtailing the reproduction of our rattlesnakes so that more bites are from larger rattlesnakes rather than smaller rattlesnakes. Right. Uh, it could be, and we can talk about that in a bit, which gives more venom, smaller, large rattlesnakes. Right. It could also be that the human side of the equation is changing. For example, who's getting bitten? Are these uh, people in Arizona who are increasingly a more aged population right. that are prone to health issues? Um, Southern California, we have a huge increase in allergies. Mm-hmm. And those individuals are more likely to have a negative, um, you know, reaction, uh, reaction <clears throat> to snake venom. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot more going on. And, and the bottom line is that venom cannot change within a few generations of snakes. A generation of snake can be three to seven, even more years. Right. So, uh, for something to change in a couple of decades, you're talking about almost instantaneous evolution. And, and it's not happening, sim- happening simultaneously across multiple populations where the press reports are coming from. Right. San Diego, Arizona, Colorado. It's just, it's all bogus. It's hype. It's right. sensationalism. Right. I, I totally agree, and I know very definitely what you're talking about. Now, as far as, because I know someone is going to ask somewhere along the line, and I'm sure you've been asked this question enough times now that you probably have, you know, a designer answer for it. <laughs> what is the best way to treat for rattlesnake inventivation? Go to a hospital. The, the bottom line is that many of our, many of our first aid treatments in the past are just not useful, right. and uh, they can actually do more harm. Mm-hmm. Uh, one one popular treatment was to cut and suck, and they actually came out with the suction device. And Sean John Bush wanted to test that and uh, invited me to help him. Right. Really, you know, he deserves the credit for it. 
But we were able to show using a pig model. These were anesthetized pigs so that they didn't feel the pain and discomfort. Uh, but we were able to show the suction for the extractor device mm -hmm. is not uh, helpful. And right. uh, it just sucks, that's all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, the pedal extractor just sucks. <laughs> and, and in a few instances, actually appeared to cause more injury than benefit to the pig. Oh, wow. But that was, you know, a good experimental model there. Right. Electric shock, a number of studies have shown that's bogus. That, that gained popularity a few decades ago. Yeah, it did. What's that? Yeah, I said, yeah, it did. I remember uh, reading a story of a gentleman that actually tased himself after yeah. being intubated, and I was like, wow, really? Yeah, <laughs> well, it, it came from, a, I think, a medical missionary down in uh, South America who was using it to treat patients, and wow. the majority survived. Well, the majority might have survived without that shock. Right. But, uh, um, there's, there's another possibility that's being explored, and uh, we show some data to suggest that using pressure mobilization mm -hmm. can be beneficial for rattlesnake bites, at least in terms of prolonging survival. Oh, okay. But that idea, again, that was with pigs, but that, that idea is very problematic because the conventional wisdom is that the rattlesnake venom is very necrotic. It, it right. causes tissue destruction. And by keeping it there with the restricting band, you are causing more tissue injury than you would have otherwise. The big problem in the U.S. is not death. It's right. a tissue injury. Um, the people who have used it for many years and recommended it and studied it for Australia, elapids in particular, but elapids everywhere. Okay. Um, it has always looked promising, but there are people who say it can't be done right by the practitioner. A nice study was done on that. Oh, it's wow. Hard, it's hard to get the right pressure there. Um, there's some evidence that suggests it works, uh, some evidence that, that, that raises doubt. Mm -hmm. uh, the odd thing is there's a couple very recent papers that came out suggesting, I think they were studies in pigs as well, that it might still be a good idea with rattlesnake bites. So uh, I don't think the verdict is entirely in on that. I would say don't try anything other than get to a hospital for now. Right. But that may change one day. Okay. Uh, we'll see. You know, yeah. We just need more good research. Right, right. Definitely keep an eye on it and, you know, don't listen to the press. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would, yeah. <coughs> Stay far away from the press. clear of a lot of that. Now, there's some other neat ideas coming out. I mean, there's this, uh, there's this brand new, it's, um, uh, I forget what the substance is, nitric acid, I believe, that uh, can be administered, and it, it causes uh, a similar thing as the constricting band. It reduces lymph flow and slows the movement of venom into the blood. Wow. And, uh, a neat study just came out on that. That's, that's intriguing. Yeah. Uh, there's, any venom is clearly, clearly amazing, life-saving stuff. Yes. That's the best bet. Very definitely. Very definitely. And now, as far as moving on to uh, your latest research, I think the latest paper I read from you was uh, talking about the uh, home range uh, size movements and mating uh, of St. Patrick Red Diamond and Southern Pacific Rattlesnakes in Southern California. What did you uh, What did you find out within that paper? Well, that's... Uh I don't know if that's my latest research because there's always a bunch going on. Oh, right, right. <laughs> I think the latest published uh, one anyway that I could get access to. 
my student Eric Dugan finished his PhD on that, did a very nice job. He was interested in, you know, the simple fact that we can go on a road here in Southern California or leave the road and walk up on the hillsides. And, and in any one particular area, we might expect to encounter two or three or more species of rattlesnake. And the question is, how can they coexist? And there's right. this guy named Goss, G-A-U-S-E, many years ago came up with the competitive exclusion principle. It says two species cannot occupy the exact same niche because niche, one right. would outcompete and cause the extinction of the other, or at least local extinction. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and there's some evidence of competitive exclusion, some, some uh, character displacement to support that. It's, it's an interesting concept. It's, it's all community ecology and not something I'm real up on. Mm-hmm. But when I have a student who wants to do a project, and you know, if, if it's something interesting, and I think I can get a handle on with the literature and analyses, mm-hmm. I'm going to support that. So he came up with this neat idea, and uh, uh, we have a manuscript we're almost ready to submit. We presented it at the Biology of the Rattlesnake Symposium this summer, but he's mm-hmm. able to show that the two species are differing at one state park, Chino Hill State Park in Southern California. They're differing in their use of habitats and their their pattern of movements, uh, wow. and there's some temperature differences that they select, mm-hmm. and diet. And uh, we, like most rattlesnake researchers, have kind of written in a prior paper, you know, they, they, there's a niche separation going on here. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, are, they are choosing, uh, there has been, as, as a result of competition, they're using resources differently. Wow. And, uh, but we discovered as we were working on his dissertation this spring here in my living room he'd come down and visit he'd mm-hmm. bring his beautiful uh, Harlan sorry Harris is hawk he's a he's in the balcony oh wow but uh, we found out that there's a software we can use that will actually test whether or not the differences we observe between the two species is random wow whether it, whether it differed significantly from random and we're we're able to show that really, in spite of conventional wisdom, the differences are are, are, are are no different than what we would expect from random. So we don't have any good evidence to believe that competition between the two species has resulted in the differences. It, 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 it may well be from other things, like their prior evolutionary history. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're not competing that directly with each other that we're seeing dramatic changes. Interestingly enough, we have a hybrid in our lab. You ought to see that sometime. Oh, wow. Hybrid Southern Pacific Red Diamond that was found in Loma Linda. No kidding. And, and there I have another student who's looking at the interactions between red diamonds and humans. And uh, uh, most all of the snakes in his study, which is right in the hills behind our university, uh, he's, uh, these are snakes that we've acquired because uh, we handed information out to the residents and they've called us in and said hey i got a snake in my yard right so aaron goes up there this is aaron corbett he goes up there and grabs the snake puts the transmitter in it and lo and behold uh, all these people want us to remove the snake if it comes back to their property and these snakes do keep coming back huh. now if you move a snake a long distance it doesn't fare well right right because it's out of its home range distance, yeah if you move it a short distance you know, the odds are you won't see it again, but actually some of these snakes do keep coming back three, four times a year, maybe, wow. to the exact same spot. So, uh, 
you know, homeowners just kind of need to be aware of what snakes can and can't do. And, right. And, uh, certainly the more people learn about animals, the better the fate of those animals will be. Very definitely. Very definitely. We still have high mortality. We get a lot of people killing these snakes. Yeah, and I think, I don't think, um, I guess I would say it's more of a fear and ignorance thing than it is, you know, not appreciating the animal. It's just they believe all the hype, again, from the sensationalism and yes. react from that instead of actual knowledge about what they're looking at. <clears throat> yeah, they're not, they're just not very familiar right. with them. Where people learn about animals, the more inclined they are to care about them and, and ensure their survival in the future. Uh, there was a neat study some years ago that came out, um, actually not all that long ago. Uh, it was from Scandinavia, I believe, mm -hmm. where educators, school teachers, were showing, uh, they, they did a survey of these kids, and the kids showed they, you know, they had great appreciation and love for dogs and cats and horses and chickens and, and stuff like that. Spiders, ants, frogs, those were all less appealing to these kids. Then they would bring these unappealing animals into the classroom and let kids learn facts about them, let them handle them, and then they retested the kids and everything changed. How the kids cared about these huh. less impressive animals and, um, and, and, and did not want to see harm done to them. Right. Which, which really tells us, you know, education is, is vital if we want to do something for our environments and for the animals that share them with us. Right, very definitely. Now, you recently also did a study, um, if I'm not mistaken, where you took a look at how people interacted with animals and the educational levels and things of that nature. Is that correct? Yeah, I did a survey, yeah. Yeah, I, you know, the python situation in Florida got me going on that. Oh, boy. I have friends. <laughs> What's that? I said, oh, boy, me too. Well, I have friends like you and, and others uh -huh. you know, who, who are interested in a bit of culture and uh, I have mixed feelings about whether or not it's good for us to be keeping all these millions of pets in our homes. Some right. Very dangerous. Some of them poorly cared for. Right. But um, I thought, you know, we ought to at least have some facts. And, you know, going from my experience, that shared by many friends, I thought, you know what? What if keeping animals makes us more interested in the environment? Mm -hmm. and their future. So, uh, yeah, I did this survey online. I got 2,000, over 2,000 respondents, which blew me away. Wow. I had questions that measured interest or concern in the environment and conservation issues. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I did my background research and determined what uh, variables to control for. You have to have basic demographic variables like age, income level. Right. Uh, uh, stuff like that. All that political views, even religious views, all those can play a role. But while controlling for all those variables, mm -hmm. so that I didn't have a bias, I was able to show that uh, people who keep dogs and cats does not have, uh, it does not really affect their concern about the environment. People who keep fishes, it surprised me, but it didn't have any measurable effect. People who keep birds, the same. A real measurable effect. But when I asked about amphibians and reptiles, those who had more experience keeping them and kept larger numbers, whether past or current, uh, they 
greater concern about the environment and conservation in general. So oh, I think darn. there's a real experiential effect there. Right, right. Wow, that's amazing. That's pretty cool, huh? Yeah, it really is. And I, I think part of it um, relates to the fact that many of us who develop an interest in reptiles and amphibians, uh, you know, we're not necessarily going to pet store. Some sterile, well, carbon stuff. Some, yeah. some, some, some place, you know, that's on a street corner to get our animals. Mm -hmm. It happens more so with fishes and birds. Uh, we're often going in the woods behind our house. Right. Catching animals ourselves. And we have to do background research to figure out how to keep them alive. What do they eat? What, how much moisture do they need? And stuff like that. Yeah. So I, I do think it has an effect. Um, plants, keeping plants. The more people keep plants, now that was also measurable. Keeping plants seems to enhance people's attitude toward the environment. Huh. All right. That's, that's just awesome. <laughs> I, I, I need that. That's very cool. It now, doesn't, doesn't really go very far or help much until it gets published. It's just a matter of any other competing things at the moment. Yeah, yeah, that's completely understandable. Now, as far as your uh, research into venom and how it's used, um, how would you categorize your current research that you're doing as far as venom is concerned? Well, my interest in venom over the years has been primarily at the organismal level. Okay. How does the how does a snake in particular use its venom? What is its biological role in nature? How much does it use? Can it even control how much? So that's where I put most of my career, really, most of my publication. Okay. And it's, it's been a lot of fun. And I've mostly kind of had it to myself, my students and I. But, yeah. Uh, at one point, a controversy erupted. There was a colleague who disagreed with some of our findings and more so our conclusions. Oh, okay. But, uh, I, I think the evidence is very compelling, uh, particularly in a chapter summarized in a chapter in our, our, our rattlesnake volume, the, uh, the Biology of Rattlesnakes. Have you seen that book? Yes, I have, actually, a couple of times. And I almost got it at the Pomona show, um, one of the, uh, well, the only bookseller there that I know of, um, had it on his thing, and um, unfortunately the wife put the kibosh on spending money at that, <laughs> at that show, so I, couldn't <laughs> so I couldn't get it, but it is on my list to get, There's very definitely, I definitely want to pick that up, and I was also wanted to attend the uh, symposiums that you guys uh, keep putting out, too. That's well, we've only had two symposiums. Right. But anyway, right. we do have a chapter in this book where we summarize very succinctly the evidence that I think strongly suggests that these snakes can control how much venom they use. Mm -hmm. They make decisions, and, and it's not that unexpected, because uh, we, we've also published uh, some similar work recently on scorpions. They, they too, make decisions. Mm -hmm. But a lot of animals are making decisions about how much, if it's not venom, like spiders, the papers on spiders by other people, mm -hmm. um, even even uh, even uh, cone snails. It's, it's not just venom that they make decisions about, uh, but also other fluids like uh, like um, uh, like like how they how octopi deliver. Their um, their secretions, you know, they they inject mm -hmm. ink, right? And they have several ways of doing that. And um, there's a type of worm that expels saliva.
spider that's alive on. Right. And uh, these animals are are making decisions about uh, how much to use. And, and there are some people who say, oh, come on, snakes don't have the brain capacity to, to really compute anything. Uh. And, and it's like, come on, almost all animals. I mean, I mean we show, for example, that rattlesnakes inject more venom into larger prey on average. Right. And uh, uh, there are, there are uh, uh, many invertebrates, neurologically very simple animals. Mm-hmm. They not only look at another individual and assess its size, but they know how big that individual is relative to itself, even though it doesn't have a mirror to look at itself. And these animals make decisions all the time about size-related things. They have to bring to compute that. There's a study of, uh, there's, there's many, many animals that allocate different amounts of sperm, depending on the circumstances of the female, how big she is, whether she's been mated previously, and so forth. Even the the brainless but not clueless um, worm is capable of making a decision like that. I don't wow. know how they do it, but uh, to say that snakes can't is kind of silly. Yeah, I've never bought into that, you know, and a lot of the, a couple of the papers that I've read, you know, um, the estimates differ from paper to paper, but basically about half of all rattlesnake envenomations, I believe it is, are actually dry bites where no venom is injected. I think it's much less than that. Oh, is it? Okay. But it's it's up there. I mean, it's... Yeah. Where, you know, it seems pretty obvious just from those numbers that, okay, you know, because of the cost of the production of venom, biologically speaking, of course, you know, the cost of producing venom is, you know, not going to be wasted on something it's not going to eat, basically. Right. Right. You know, The cost is probably fairly small for rattlesnakes. It's hard to say whether it's trivial or not. Let's mm-hmm. bear in mind that you know a female could potentially mate every year if she has enough energy. Right. More often she can't. She may need to wait two, sometimes three or four years before right. she has that energy. So even little amounts of energy could make a difference over the lifetime of the animal. Uh-huh. Um, in some animals, I mean scorpions, it's more like thirty percent extra energy consumed over over. Uh, a four-day period to regenerate its venom. I mean, that's pretty substantial. Wow. So, uh, but yeah, animals animals are going to be favored by selection to make good decisions. And, uh, right. This is, a, this is a good example of that. Great. And, and, but but there is there is you know it's it's not entirely clear-cut because there are constraints to getting venom out. Uh, there can be. Uh, Kinematic. Uh, there can be mechanical constraints, you know, that differ between a, a, a predatory bite and a defensive bite of a human limb. Yeah, uh, I saw you had written something about um, the difference in the mechanics of a predatory versus uh, defensive bite, which um, was kind of interesting to me. Yeah, and so there's potential that the venom delivery is simply disrupted in a defensive bite, but uh, still we. We think there's uh, plenty of ability for the snake to still make decisions, and probably a portion, a good portion of those dry bites are voluntary. You know, when I was hiding venomous snakes in my bedroom as a kid, <laughs> I had I had a cottonmouth that we had caught down in Mississippi uh-huh. and uh, concealed in our suitcase that went on the car top carrier, and somehow it survived the heat and got it home had that for a number of years, but every winter, 
that snake would stop eating. And I could throw a mouse or a frog in that cage, and that cottonmouth would strike it, but it wouldn't die. And uh, it was clear the snake was just giving a bite without injecting venom. And you know, to me, it was very obvious you know, something's going on here. Yeah. And anybody, anybody who extracts venom from snakes, uh, you know, they, they can tell the two fangs operate very independently. Right. The glands associated with them. Um, you've got two very different venom delivery systems in the left and right side. And, uh, oh, really? Yeah. A single pulse of venom, um, uh, they can be asynchronous, the way the fangs work and the glands oh, pushing, wow. pushing the venom out. Um, you could have two, you could have three successive pulses of venom coming out, you know, you know squeezes of the venom gland. Uh-huh. You might have a short one, a really long one, and a really short one. I mean, wow. they just, they just, those venom glands are capable of controlling how much they release. Right. The spitting cobra is a fascinating example because when they spit, they will spray like four, four milligrams of venom, just a little tiny pulse, and it comes out in like seven hundredths of a second, very brief. Right. But then when they want to bite, and they actually grab a hold of you, They'll squeeze, and in a single pulse of venom, it's going to be like 30 hundredths of a second, and you might get 150, 200 milligrams of venom. Holy hell. So it's, uh, you know, I mean, they, they really have very fine control over how much venom that gland is going to pump out. That is amazing. Now, <clears throat> and again, probably one of the questions you get asked a lot by lay persons or, you know, probably even some herpeticulturists, who knows. Um, <clears throat> For our intensive purposes, what's more venomous? Is it a <laughs> is it a baby rattlesnake that can't control its venom, or is it a large rattlesnake that you know? What are we looking at here? This is one of the more interesting studies or stories that I've encountered. So I'll take a few minutes to describe it. Sure. Um, but yeah, most most of all of us have heard that the baby rattlesnakes are more dangerous because they can't control how much venom they use when they bite, and therefore they let it all out and, mm-hmm. and, and deliver more than an adult. And I'll just say at the outset that's completely bogus. It's a myth. But the picture is really interesting that emerges regarding, that surrounds this myth. Mm-hmm. Um, in the first place, those baby rattlesnakes uh, have far less venom than the adults. Mm-hmm. As a snake grows in size, the venom gland increases exponentially and becomes much, much larger. Right. And as you mentioned to me uh, before we started recording, uh, I like your analogy. You know, the <laughs> venom gland of a baby, like a BB in size. Right. Whereas that, there's two, of course, in, in a snake. But the venom glands for the adult are more like a kidney being in size, even larger. Right, right. So uh, the adults are certainly able to produce deliver a lot more, and the fact is they do. Right. Um, now, now a part of the equation is going to be toxicity. Mm-hmm. Most of our rattlesnakes, <clears throat> the babies have more toxic venom than the adults. It's just more toxic. It doesn't mean they have more neurotoxin or anything like that. Mm-hmm. They're simply more toxic and, 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 and effective for killing. They, they tend to eat more lizards if they're eating rodents. Right. They, may have to, they don't have much venom to inject, so it needs to be lethal. Right. Uh, and they're generally eating small prey items. Mm-hmm. As the snake grows, it's feeding on much larger prey. It, 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 if it's not already feeding on rodents, it'll typically switch to rodents. Mm-hmm. 
And those guys need to be digested because they're big and bulky. So the rattlesnake injects a lot of venom, and it changes to become more digestive. Proteolytic is the word. Right. The babies have more toxic venom. The adults have more digestive venom. So it changes during the lifetime of the snake. Hmm. And then that and then, Go ahead. And then there are some species like... The, well, this is first study in the midget rattlesnake, but it probably applies to the northern, uh, to the Mojave rattlesnake that has neurotoxin and, and other neurotoxic rattlesnakes. The venom of the babies is basically the same as that of the adults. They have the same venom all their life. Oh, wow. It's kind of like neoteny, where, you know, the Mexican axolotl, um, the larva of, of uh, tiger salamanders, mm -hmm. they will retain those gills all their life. That's neoteny, the retention of their uh, neonatal characteristics into adulthood. Right. Um, we also call it pedomorphosis. But uh, so, so, you know, toxicity is important there. But even so, um, you take a, a rattlesnake like our Southern Pacific rattlesnake, a red diamond rattlesnake, or a prairie rattlesnake, mm -hmm. most timber rattlesnakes, you and I'd rather be bitten by the baby. Yeah, it's very definitely. Yeah, then it might be a little more toxic. Right, right. The, uh, it can't inject as much as the adult. And how much do they inject? Actually, the only study that has looked at whether or not babies can control how much venom they release actually suggested that they could. And I, I conducted that my study, that study myself. Nice. <laughs> and, and that's the only one that has... I mean, there's no study to show that they can't control it. Uh, huh. Secondly... Secondly, um, there's good studies showing that in defensive bites, you know, we'll, we'll have snakes like gloves, for example, saline silk gloves. Right. Defensive bites or predatory bites when they bite mice, um, we've measured in mice as well, the, the babies just inject way less than the adults. Hmm. And then we have clinical data in humans who are very clear that the adult snakes are causing more dangerous bites, they're causing more severe symptoms, which we can measure. Well, that's what I was going to ask you next, was um, from a physician standpoint, when an adult rattlesnake bites, because you said it was more of a uh, proteolytic uh, envenomation, and due to the digestion process, that means that when an adult bites you, it's going to be more uh, tissue damage. Is that not, would that not yeah. be an accurate statement? Mm, Possibly. You know, the babies is pretty necrotic as well. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, except for the neurotoxic species. Right. In which okay. case, the venom looks like it's the same for babies and adults. Mm -hmm. but, uh, yeah, that neurotox, uh, or rather the, the proteolytic activity, the digestive capacity of venom, that's what causes the biggest problem for snake bites in, in North America. It's that mm -hmm. tissue damage. Wow. Now, this story gets interesting because I can go give talks, probably as you have here in Southern California, uh -huh. and ask the audience which is more dangerous. And, uh, uh, I can say, you know, how many of you think it's the babies? And 70, 50 to 70% of the hands will go up. Oh, definitely. So I actually uh, spent some time and some money looking at old historic newspaper reports that I could get from archives on the Internet. Uh-oh. And I was able to show that uh, all of... I, I looked at all these reports from prior to, I think it was 1990. It might have been 2000. But uh, everything that came out of California, well, everything before about 1970 had 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 facts correct. Nobody said that 
baby rattlesnakes were more dangerous than it. Then a period from about 1970 to either 1990 or 2000, I forget which, um, all the California newspapers had it wrong, and most newspapers elsewhere in the country had it right. And then after the Internet age, I guess it was 2000, after the Internet age, now everybody's getting it wrong all across the country. So no I concluded kidding. that this myth originated by 1970 or so in, in California. California. And then I uh, emailed a whole bunch of college faculty all across the U.S. Yeah. and had them ask their students a couple questions, really just one question. I tried to pack it all in one. Sure. But uh, where do you think this myth is best well-known by students, college students? I would have to guess California. <laughs> well, in the western states, certainly. Southwest has the highest incidence of familiarity. It was over 50%. And then as you go east and especially north, by the time you get to, like, New York, uh, in the New England states, right. it's down to about 15% familiarity. So, um. again, I think this myth originated in California. And when I had a poster that I presented and also mentioned it in a talk at the Biology of Biosynics Symposium, uh. I had a guy who came up to me and uh, spoke with me afterwards from the Bay Area, and he believes he is the source of that myth. No he's way! He's a pharmacist, and I probably shouldn't mention his name no. at this point. But he's a he gave me permission to more or less, but I'm I, right. I gotta I gotta write him. But he's a pharmacist and got tired of seeing all these people come in bitten by baby snakes who thought that the babies were not so dangerous. And so he started telling people, you can't you can't play with these baby rattlesnakes. They're very dangerous. In fact, they're more dangerous than the adults. <laughs> can't control how much venom they inject, and therefore inject more. So he thinks he's the source of that myth. And it just cracked me up to hear that. Oh, really my God, up. that's hilarious. That was the most unexpected thing that happened at that symposium. I just, I just thought it was hilarious. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That is awesome. <laughs> now, now, you know, in terms of practical application, here's something fun that came out of our studies. We published a nice um, paper in, in uh, Annals of Emergency Medicine uh, a couple years ago where mm -hmm. wearing long clothing can protect against how much venomous snake injects into you. In our study, it cut by two-thirds the amount of venom the snakes would inject in these gloves. Simply wearing, we use denim, but simply wearing long clothing can disrupt uh, the mechanics of the bite or whatever, that's a weakness it is, but uh, it provides some protection. So if you're out in snake bite, if you're in snake habitat, you can give yourself some protection by wearing longer clothing. Wow. That's amazing. So just basically wearing long pants could yeah. make the difference between <laughs> a really bad incident or, you know, I mean, both, both incidents are going to be bad, but one could be you know, fatally bad. Yes, yes. Wow. Um, now, you know, it's not a guarantee of anything. Oh, sure. Yeah, there's no John guarantee. John Bush, my colleague at uh, the University Medical Center, he has only had, I mean, he's treated hundreds and hundreds of cases. Right. He's had two fatalities, and one was a guy who was bitten through the genes by a very large rattlesnake. So it, it's not fail-safe. Right, right. And, you know, I don't think it's, possible to ever really say that any medical treatment is fail-safe. You know, I mean, right. the chances right. continually go up, and, you know, the more procedures are done, but 
you know, really, it's ne- I don't I would I would feel really odd going to a doctor and they, if they could tell me this is a hundred percent we're sure of it. Yeah, no. <laughs> I'm not too. I wanted a second opinion on that one. So yeah. as far as the uh, um, research and things of that nature, what is the import of the researching venom, such as yourself, um, Dr. Brian Fry? You know, uh, I think Dr. Rulon Clark is also uh, researching some rattlesnakes and things of that nature here at uh, San Diego State University. So, where does where does this affect humans? I guess would be the best way to put it for our listeners. Well, most of my research again has been at the organismal level, mm-hmm. how the snake actually uses it, uh, you know, the biological properties of its venom. But um, in, in, in those terms, I can share what I've learned with audiences. People definitely gain a better respect for rattlesnakes, a better understanding of rattlesnakes, what they can do, what they cannot do. Right. And uh, and so that's, uh, again, you know, awareness is important and understanding and, you know, educating people about that uh, does change the way people relate to these animals. Uh, then in, there's the obvious biopharmaceutical mm-hmm. benefits. Venoms have been a wonderful source of, of medication up to this point mm-hmm. and uh, probably increasingly so from here forward. Right. We've got Bietta, for example. Um, um, that, that, that helps to control diabetes. That's derived from the Gila monster's venom. Wow. We've got Zyconotide, uh-huh. which is derived from the uh, cone snail venom. Oh, wow. There's, there's a half dozen other medications that right. I believe are currently approved for you know, some pain applications. Right. And uh, heart issues, stroke um, a lot of others are undergoing testing. Uh-huh. Uh, there's a product that you can buy that's homeopathic in nature right now. It's actually diluted cobra venom that you can squirt in your mouth or or, or rub on your skin. Uh-huh. That's not going to help with the more severe pain. But uh, they are working on other applications. Wow. So there's, there's a lot going there, going on that's going to benefit humans more directly. Right. Now, I, I have a grandfather passed away now, but uh, and many people have this mindset. Why are you studying some if it doesn't have any benefit to him? Right. And my comeback to him was always, look, you know, basic information is what people thrive on. It's what people need to make basic decisions about how they relate to animals, how they relate to the natural world. And, um, and if I'm doing that, Grandpa, I'm doing good enough. <laughs> there you go. That works for me. I like that answer. <laughs> I wish I would have had that um, one when my dad was still around. <laughs> but, but you know, much of, much of my research today is dealing with uh, what my students decide to study. I'm, I'm the kind of professor that says, uh, you know, it's important to me that you study a topic that you're passionate about. If right. I find them a topic, it, it's just not going to work well. Right. They have to be passionate about it. So currently I have some students very interested in venom. Carl Person, uh, Eric Wren, Chip Cochran. Oh, okay. These are good students, and uh, they're interested in some, at least, at least to some extent in biopharmaceutical applications. So I'm going to encourage that. Unfortunately, I'm not a biochemist. I'm not very good at helping with some of their stuff. But here at Loma Linda, we have 
like their research. Right. Send them up there to say, hey, ask so and so. Yeah, exactly. How to how to how to run this test and that test. This is awesome. Well, uh, Dr. Hayes, I want to uh, first of all thank you again for being on the show and uh, look forward to uh, hopefully seeing you at uh, the next symposium or possibly a reptile show here in the future. Um, <clears throat> now, as far as your uh, any future research that you can reveal uh, that you're currently working with, as far as the you know aspects of venom or anything like that, uh, I can just tell you that uh, you know I have I have a couple persons working on geographic variation in, in southern Pacific rattlesnakes. But, okay. Uh, he and Eric Grant are both looking at uh, geographic variation in the venom. Cubs mm-hmm. particularly interested in some some health or, or Biopharmaceutical aspects. Mm-hmm. Um, here's something interesting that that might take off. We have some cancer researchers. I'm sorry, these are um, stroke researchers working with models for stroke. And actually, my memory's not doing me well. It's, it's more brain surgery or brain surgery applications. Okay. And uh, I mean, this is kind of interesting because when somebody goes into your brain and does surgery, you have two problems afterwards. You have bleeding. Right. Most brains don't respond well to that, and uh, and, and so there's uh, a flurry of studies trying to figure out how to how to reduce that. Right. And uh, everybody's going for one thing right now, and that is first before the surgery, cause some insult to the brain, cause some injury, very minor, so that the body will actually start producing its own defense to protect against swelling and bleeding. So these guys have been by our lab. We've given them a little venom, injected venom, like three days in a row into rats, and uh, then give the rats a day off. Mm-hmm. It's a very, very minute amount of venom, but it's irritating to the tissues. Sure. It's necrotic. It causes some swelling and bleeding. Then they do the surgery, and um, it's all preliminary right now. Right. But uh, you know, we, we, we may be seeing less, less bleeding. I don't want to publicize this too much now that I think of it because uh, you have to be careful in that industry about giving ideas away. Right. But uh, uh, in any event, um, it's, it's all very complicated. And we, have to have, we have to have approved protocols and everything. For sure. Research. But uh, I mean, there's, there's an interesting possibility, isn't it? Very definitely. Wow. I mean, rattlesnake venom is good at, 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 at causing swelling and bleeding. Yes, from what I've seen, it is. <laughs> Thank God I haven't personally experienced it yet. <laughs> now, there's, there's a question. <laughs> but, but, you know, a lot of bites um, are caused by the two most dangerous chemicals in the world. Yes, sir. and alcohol. Exactly. <laughs> and in my case, I've got enough of testosterone, but I, I personally still clear the alcohol. Yeah. And, uh, it's probably a good thing in my profession. Because yeah. <laughs> I would think so. can be combustible. Yes, very definitely. Very definitely. Stupid behavior can result. Yeah, so, uh, you know, and I think uh, my friend put it best. Uh, he read some, he had done some research and uh, had put together a little um, demographic, shall we say, of um, who gets bit most, because we would always ask the scouts and that. And, uh, you know, they would always say, you know, inevitably, oh, it's, you know, older people, yada, yada, whatever. And uh, the demographic we actually came up with and actually figured out 
was between the ages of 18 and 24, between the uh, index finger and elbow, and <laughs> it typically male. involved male, and typically involved drugs or alcohol. <laughs> yes, 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 and yes. I mean, it's pretty phenomenal. You know, ladies and uh, children go <coughs> more often didn't below the waist than above the waist. Right. Males used to be in that category back in Lawrence Clobber's day when he wrote two volumes compendium, but right. very right. different today. Now, I don't know why any male is getting bit in the lip or tongue or throat. <laughs> That's obviously... That's a personal whole. issue. <laughs> <laughs> That's a personal issue for another show. <laughs> yep, and uh, they don't have insurance. They better be begging for public help because that's very, very expensive. Oh, my gosh, yeah. Yeah, it definitely is. And there you have it, folks. That was Dr. William K. Hayes from Loma Linda University talking to us today about rattlesnakes and venomations and bite mechanics. And once again, I'm your host, John F. Taylor, and we look forward to seeing you next week in the Reptile Living Room. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>